And first, a quick word from our podcast sponsor. FactSet delivers superior data, analytics, and flexible technology to help more than 170,000 users see and seize opportunities sooner. For over 40 years, we have given investment professionals the edge to outperform with informed insights, workflow solutions across the portfolio lifecycle, and industry-leading support from dedicated specialists. Through market changes and technological progress, we're proud to have been recognized with multiple awards for our analytical and data-driven solutions, while staying connected to our clients and each other. Learn more at www.factset.com. Hey, everybody. Welcome again to the Sustainability Story. I'm Matt Orsog with CFA Institute, and today we're talking to Ken Pucker, Advisor Director at Berkshire Partners and a Senior Lecturer at the Fletcher School at Tufts University. Good to talk to you, Ken. Thanks for having me. Ken, is uh, we, we always try to have interesting people on the podcast. I'm never going to tell you we don't have an interesting person on the podcast. I hope we always do. But Ken has a very interesting background. He's been in the ESG sustainability g- game for a while. I'll let him talk about that uh, in more detail. But he started at Timberland decades ago, not too many decades ago. But they were in the forefront of ESG and sustainable reporting. And now he's a senior lecturer at Tufts University and an advisor at Berkshire Partners and writes extensively and often on ESG. And I'll talk a little bit about that. I'll recommend some recommended readings for me from Ken, and he'll give you some other things. But uh, Ken, let's start off. Tell me, tell us a little bit about how you got to uh, where you are, your, your experiences at Timberland, and then we'll go from there. Well, again, thanks for having me. I'll try to be brief in terms of how I got to where I am. I worked at Goldman Sachs prior to business school, went to business school, thought I'd graduate with a focus on finance, but between years ended up on a trip to Korea and Japan. For those of you old enough to remember, Japan was dominant in terms of manufacturing in the late 80s, early 90s. They were the equivalent of what China is today. And so we went to Korea and Japan and visited factories, uh, Pusan Steel and Toyota, Sony, et cetera, to see what it was they were doing from a manufacturing standpoint, why the U.S. was losing competitively. And I got really turned on by the idea that the U.S. could and should compete in manufacturing. So I shifted trajectories, ended up graduating from business school, joining Bain & Company, who had a practice area that was focused on manufacturing operations. I lasted there for eight days prior to being laid off by uh, Mitt Romney, who came <laughs> over from Bain Capital to rescue Bain, which was uh, going under at that, the time. That's a story. That's a story I didn't even know. That that sounds like a whole different podcast. But uh, three hundred people just... were laid off. Thirty-eight of my fifty-two starting class. In any event, ended up wow. at a, working at a, a company that's based in Palo Alto called Varian Associates as a as a, a factory floor supervisor and getting my basic lathe operator's degree at night realized that was for engineers and I wasn't an engineer and that's how I ended up at Timberland. It was a company that at the time, uh, 1992, made 100% of its own footwear products. And so what I was attracted to was the fact that it had factories. And uh, three of the four factories were uh, US-based, one in Puerto Rico, one in North Carolina, one in Tennessee, and one in Dominican Republic. And so I joined the company was probably about a $200 million company, publicly traded, reasonably out of control, growing at 30 and 40% a year, not making money. It was at the time led by the second generation of the Swartz family who had 10 to 1 voting rights and Class B shares. And I was fortunate because I joined a company that was really, really rich in terms of values. 
It was focused on stakeholder capitalism before the term was in vogue. It was a purpose-driven company before uh, the business roundtable started talking about purpose. And I was able to do lots of things there because the company grew. So over the time period I was there, the company grew about tenfold. I had nine jobs. And the last seven years I was there, I spent uh, working as chief operating officer. The CEO at the time was Jeff Swartz, who was the third generation of the company of the family to lead the company. And he was a faith-based guy who was really, really bright. And what motivated him to come to work every day was an agenda he called described as uh, commerce and justice, mm-hmm. which in the year 2000 or around there is a big word for business, uh, justice. Yeah. And justice had three components. It was environmental stewardship, global human rights and citizen service. And Timberland tried to lead in each one of those areas. I ended up staying Timberland for 15 years. I graduated in 2007 and since have been working either as an investor or a teacher or a writer or an advisor at the intersection of capitalism and climate or natural capital and trying to figure out how we can better balance the two. That's, that's great. That's, uh, that leads us well into the, what we're going to talk about. Before we get into some of the questions you know, we had discussed before, is there kind of one, one number or one fact that kind of frames the ESG discussion, sustainability discussion for you that will kind of help frame the rest of our discussion before we go on? If it's okay with you, with your permission, I'd give you two. That's fine. The first is that in April of 2021, uh, the same day that global parts per million of carbon in the atmosphere hit an all-time high of 419, BlackRock launched a ETF called the U.S. Carbon Transition Readiness Fund, and they raised $1.25 billion in less than eight hours. I think it was their largest single-day raise of an ETF. And you'd think, given the name of the fund, U.S. Carbon Readiness Transition, that it was focused on things like Tesla or renewable energy or things like that, get us ready for carbon readiness transition. But if you go look at the contents of the ETF, the top five holdings are Microsoft, Apple, Amazon, Alphabet, and Facebook. And the fund also holds uh, JP Morgan and Exxon and Chevron and traditional large cap holdings, mm-hmm. which I think is symptomatic the, where we are from an ESG standpoint, which is that there's a lot more marketing than there is substance. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the substance can be either about impact, social, environmental, or planetary, or about alpha, and I'm happy to talk about both. But I think right now we're in the cart before the horse from a marketing standpoint. The second related fact I'd share is that Vanguard's largest, or one of their largest ESG ETFs is called the Vanguard ESG US Stock ETF. It has $6.5 billion and is 0.9974 correlated with the S&P 500. Again, it makes the same point as the BlackRock story, which is to say that there's a lot more uh, marketing than there is muscle from an ESG standpoint today. Yeah, and this is this is one of the reasons I wanted to have you on. You know, we've had discussions in the past about what is the state of ESG and sustainability in the world. How much is walking the walk? How much is just talking the talk? And I I think we're in a great transition from you know where we were before to hopefully in the future, and we get, hopefully we get there at a speed sooner sooner than slow of this more walk and less talk. That you know net zero promises. You know, we just came through COP26. We've seen a lot of net zero promises. 
but uh, there's not a lot of meat on those bones. There's not a lot of facts. There's not a lot of interim guideposts. It's just something magical is going to happen in 2050 in a lot of these cases. And you've written a lot of on this and spoken a lot on this, and I thought it was a great point of view to, to have. You know, I, I agree with a lot of that. Uh, I don't want, but I don't want to subjugate our listeners to having me proselytize about that. And you're, you can, you've rewritten on it more eloquently than I have. So that kind of sets up the next big question that we'll get into a little bit of what, what you've written and, and be critical about a little bit of state of ESG reporting and the state of, of you know, marketing, you know, walk versus talk and those kind of things. But kind of set the scene of where we've been, where we are, and where we're going in your estimation on these questions of ESG and sustainability. So first, the good news is I think that why we're having a big conversation about ESG and sustainability is the intersection of two rapid changing factors. The first is just planetary need. I don't have to speak at length about climate change. It's gone from a theoretical concept 50 years ago to people's houses burning and subway stations getting filled with water and crops getting wiped out. And so I think the imminence, the practical, the day-to-day impacts of climate change and water scarcity and biodiversity and resource scarcity are unfortunately at a level that away has gone away. And we're having to deal with these things much later than we would like to, but it's imminent. Uh, The second factor is that from a financial standpoint, there's a massive shift going on in asset management that's both generational and gender-based. And younger generation and women are more interested in aligning their values with value. And the coincidence of these two factors creates an opportunity for the asset management industry to productize this notion of ESG. Uh, Where are we today on ESG? I would describe it as a frenzy. Over the last two years, inflows to ESG funds are more than twice the rest of the market combined. There are five times the number of ESG funds today that there were over the 10 years ago. And according to Bloomberg, one in $3 is now invested in some kind of ESG product, and that's expected to continue to grow at double digits. And so there's a real, real frenzy. Uh, Rebranding of funds, creation of new funds, moving towards uh, funds that can be self-selected by investors, all using different lenses that focus on ESG. It's important to note that ESG is also reasonably undefined, which helps explain the breadth of the tent. There's lots of types of investing fit under the ESG tent, from climate tech investing, which is really venture-based, to impact investing, which can be either a balance of returns and impact or impact first, negative screen funds, ESG integration, norms-based investing. There's a whole bunch of different categories, and I'm happy to talk to each in terms of its ability to generate alpha and impact. But your question was, how do we get here? And I would describe that as we got here in three phases. Maybe 25 years ago, a group of companies, Timberland was one of them, started to focus on voluntary corporate social responsibility. In Timberland's case, I mentioned the three areas of commerce and the three areas of justice, you know, environmental stewardship, citizen service, and global human rights. We were the first publicly traded company to offer and ask employees to take 40 hours of paid community service time. We had the strictest code of conduct in the apparel business. Um, we did third-party audits. We had renewable energy at our own manufacturing facilities and our distribution centers. We did a lot of things on a voluntary basis. And to be candid, I'm not sure there was a lot of uptake, either with consumer or with investor at that point. It was, as I mentioned, faith-based, and it actually did pay off in my 
view, and I'm happy to share why, but it wasn't certainly consumer facing or investor facing right. uh, in terms of payoff. In fact, I sat through 28 straight uh, quarterly calls as COO with the street. And for each of those calls, the CEO devoted a third of his prepared remarks to our justice agenda, never once got a question. Yeah. And so I would argue probably Timberland was ahead of its time, along with other companies like Patagonia and Unilever. That's phase one. Phase two was an attempt to report on those voluntary actions. So there was the beginnings of a movement starting with GRI and then SASB and a whole bunch of other acronyms focused on reporting. And the thesis being that if companies voluntarily reported on their CSR ESG performance, it would in fact encourage investors and consumers to get more engaged. And we've gone through a massive growth of CSR reporting such that now more than 90% of S&P 500 companies report on their corporate social responsibility. I'm not sure that either of those things has really moved the needle in terms of impact. And so now we're in phase three, which is using those reports. We've seen the growth of an ESG ratings industry, you know, mm -hmm. to support the ESG investment industry. There's now over 160 companies that rate companies on, or firms that rate companies on their ESG performance. A great article appeared in Bloomberg just two weeks ago that was called the ESG Mirage, which talked about what those raters actually are rating. Right. They're rating the impact of the world on that those companies' balance sheets and income statements, not the impact of those companies on the world. Right. But the ratings movement has helped foster the ESG investing movement. And we've talked about how that's grown really quickly and continues to grow really quickly. And yet, if we think about it, over that 25-year period, what's happened to the world from an environmental or social standpoint, I think we probably all agree that environmentally we're in worse shape than we were 25 years ago. Carbon emissions are up over 50% over that period of time. And uh, social inequality, at least in this country, is gapping, and we haven't made much progress in terms of social equity across the planet. And so it's not clear to me that this voluntary movement over a 25-year run has delivered really great results from a planetary impact. Great. That was a, a, a great summary of kind of setting the scene for, for what I want to talk about next. And what I want to talk about next is uh, I'll tease people that I'll, I'll give them the, the cheat reading your articles that I'll talk about in the what we're, what we're reading section, but I'm not going to give those now because, you know, I want them to listen to the rest of the podcast. But in, uh, in there, you talk about, you know, the, what's kind of developed as Sustainability Inc., how far has the, this consortium of NGOs, academics, executives, and consultants been able to advance sustainable outcomes over the past two decades? And what is the positive and not as positive developments of that? So the positive is that there is more focus on these urgent planetary issues, environmental and social, and that companies increasingly are being forced to focus on strategies that lead to more sustainable outcomes and increasingly are being held to account. There's also much more, I think, youth-driven interest in the future and real focus as a result principally on greenhouse gas emissions, focus principally on carbon, but should be methane as well, and the impacts on the planet as a result of corporate behavior. The fact that it's spilled over into the investment world, I think, is also good. I think that 
two of the categories that I referenced before, climate tech investing, which hit an all-time high $80 billion last year, and impact investing are both really positive developments in terms of creating more benefits, planetary benefits, social and environmental. And so those are all really good things. In terms of what's not so good is that more than 90% of what's bucketed is ESG, negative screen, ESG integration, et cetera, have nothing to do with planetary outcomes. And I worry that the overselling of both corporate CSR and investment ESG is a contributor to deferring the action that's required, regulatory action, to deliver sufficient planetary benefits. And so when a layperson hears about the growth of ESG investing or hears about the number of companies that are producing CSR reports, I think their default is to think that's great, that you know investors and companies have gotten religion and they're acting more responsibly. But there's not evidence that says that's the case. And so, for example, if you think about the two biggest categories of ESG investment that I mentioned, negative screen and ESG integration, negative screen just means that asset managers are not investing in specific categories. They may not invest in firearms or tobacco or fossil fuel manufacturers. Those screens will do nothing from a planetary impact standpoint, right? I mean, that's right. For every company that doesn't buy one fossil fuel company, another asset manager will. It's not going to have any impact, literally none. And that's almost half of what's classified as ESG investment. The second biggest category, or now in certain geographies, the largest is ESG integration. ESG integration just says that asset managers will take into account ESG opportunities and risks. So when exploring a company in terms of fundamental analysis, they'll think about you know, where its factories located? Are they located within geographies that are going to experience hurricanes or rising sea levels that'll wipe them out? Are they subject to risk associated with uh, resource scarcity? Do they not have diverse boards? Do they not pay women equally? These are all great things for asset managers to look at, right? right? They should be looking at them. They can provide either opportunities or they can generate risks. But just because they're considering those and the impact on a company's P&L, that's not going to advance planetary challenges either. And so the question is, does ESG investing in general generate positive impact? And the answer is for more than 90% of it, from my perspective, the answer is no. If we go back to the question you asked at the beginning is, give me one fact about ESG to help frame the discussion. Well, If you see that Vanguard's, one of their largest ESG funds is 0.9974 correlated to the S&P 500, you'd say, what is that going to do for the planet? The answer is nothing. By the way, I don't think that the Vanguard's and BlackRock's per se are not doing their jobs. Maybe they're overselling what they're doing for impact, but, you know, their jobs as fiduciaries are to generate returns for their asset owners. And so if you look at how the portfolio managers are incented at BlackRock or Vanguard or any other asset management firms, they're not incented on lowering carbon emissions or making boards more diverse. They're incented and paid based on their performance versus benchmarks or the assets under management that they accumulate. And so they're doing what you know they're, they're, they should be doing as fiduciaries, which is trying to maximize returns. But that's certainly not going to help the planet. I'm so glad you said that. Uh, and you know, this has come out in the conversations we've had 
in the past and has come out in, in you know conversations we've had on this podcast in the past, but it's something I really want to emphasize for investors is that ESG investing, sustainable investing is, you know, I think it's positive, but it's not a cure-all and it's not going to change the incentives that need to change behavioral changes from companies, behavioral changes from ourselves as consumers and what we do. And to address those planetary boundaries, and I just I just pulled up, I, I wanted to make sure I didn't miss any of them. I know most of them, but I, I don't have them memorized. But you know, people don't think about in their investment what those planetary boundaries are. And a, a report came out last year, I believe it was from the World Bank, and I've cited it before, that about half of the GDP, half of the world's GDP, is either directly or indirectly uses you know the natural resources of you know the world, whether it's oil and gas or fresh water or clean air or down to bees pollinating our crops, right? And these planetary boundaries are things that investors need to think more about when they're investing, and policymakers, of course, need to think more about. And they, I'll just list them here: climate change, biodiversity loss, the nitrogen cycle, phosphorus ocean acidification, land use, fresh water, ozone depletion, atmospheric aerosols, and chemical pollution. You can go you know, do your research on uh, planetary boundaries, and maybe we'll have a, a podcast out on those specific things in the future. But to keep those things in mind, and we're called planetary boundaries for a reason, because once you cross that boundary, things get exponentially worse. Uh, and people are probably familiar the most with climate change. But the investment world, the ESG world, the sustainable investing world doesn't really talk about those. And there, it's a huge problem that there's no one agreed upon definition of what ESG is. And there's some, you know, some of this is being tackled the European Union, truth and labeling for products. We at CFA Institute just put out a standard on ESG products last fall so that down the road, you know, investors can know what they're getting and they'll be able to kick the tires and read the prospectus. Yes, you should read the prospectus and see if what is being sold to you is really ESG, is really sustainable. They're going to have to explain why and, and what's the reason for this. But investors need to do that work as well. And I think it's also important that investors realize that we as investors can only do so much. You know, investing finance is about the efficient allocation of capital. And that gets into, we have to have the right data and the right inputs, and we'll talk about that a little bit next, to make those decisions. But far and away, those incentives are going to be set for companies and for individuals by policymakers and regulators around the world about auto emissions, things like building standards, things like price on carbon. You know, Those are things that are beyond the purview of finance. We best reflect the world that we live in through our investment choices. And I don't want investors to think that because they invest in an ESG fund, everything's great. Everything's fine. It's a much more complicated problem than that. And we as consumers and voters have a much more outsized role than we do as investors in attack, tackling these problems. So let's get on to that issue of, of, of ESG data and ESG in particular. You touched on it a little bit uh, when you're talking about where we are, talking a little bit about how E and the S data and outcomes really haven't been focused on sufficiently to this point. You know, how do we ensure that we're, we're focusing on, as well as, well as the G, but the, that, that ESG, E and the S data, where does that stand and what needs to happen? So I do think investors need better data in order to assure its accuracy and comparability. 
consider now that we're 25 or 30 years into this reporting movement and less than half of publicly listed companies provide information on their full carbon footprint. That's amazing. Yeah. CDP, uh, the, what formerly known as the Carbon Disclosure Project, recently assigned grades for companies, publicly traded companies, and more than half got Fs for uh, giving information on just carbon. I mean, I think it's the biggest existential threat, but then you could go to water next and it gets worse. And so when you hear companies put out a press release saying they're going to reduce their carbon emissions by uh, 30% by the year 2030, et cetera, it's important that you understand what footprint they're committing to lower. First of all, is it scope one? Is it scope one and two? Is it scope three? More often than not, it doesn't include scope three, which is all upstream and downstream emissions. And for the industry I came from, that was at Timberland, 96% of emissions were in scope three. And in most industries, that's the case. Scope three is the biggest. Yeah. Yeah. And so, first of all, we need to get to full, comparable, accurate information for investors to make better judgments. And we are a long way from that. Second of all, as we talked about before, ESG ratings look at the impact of the world on the company for the most part and the company's ability to maintain its profitability or keep a clean balance sheet. That's the concept of single materiality, right? Right. There's a concept that's being discussed mostly in Europe and by GRI, which is double materiality. And it's asking that we report on not just uh, the impacts of the world on the company, but the impacts of the company on the world. That's where you begin to get to what impacts, planetary impacts, good or bad, the company's delivering. And so we're a long way from the kind of reporting that I think would influence decision-making and impact. And I have to say that even if we get to mandatory reporting and comparability, I'm not optimistic that that's going to move the needle. There's a big, big distinction between disclosure and behavior change. Mm -hmm. Uh, Consider, for example, laws that require fast food companies above a certain size to provide calorie information. That hasn't led to a decline in obesity. Uh, Or consider the fact that Sarbanes-Oxley, I think, required companies, public companies, to disclose the ratio of CEO pay to average worker pay. And since those disclosures have been made public, the gap between CEO pay and average worker pay has only increased. And so disclosure alone isn't bad. It's actually a good thing. Maybe it's a good thing as a precursor to regulation, but it doesn't mean that it's going to change behavior. Hmm. And if the system incentives are the same for CEOs and for investors and for consumers, I don't think disclosure, mandatory reporting is going to have much of an impact. Yeah, agreed. Speaking of impact, let's get on to uh, impact accounting. And this is uh, this came through in one of the, the articles you, re- you, you wrote that I want to talk about. But, you know, is putting a number on dollarizing, dollarization, for lack of a better term, of E and S and G impacts a good way to deliver progress? How is that going? Is that even something that... Uh, that can can be done. So I'd love to talk about that, and I'm happy to. I'd also like to circle back on the question of does ESG investing ultimately deliver alpha? I've talked a sure. lot about impact, but first sure. of all, I'll answer your question about impact and valuation. You know, impact accounting is an attractive idea. It would be really cool were we able to say that a company generates a certain amount of EBITDA or net profit, but then offset 
that profit against social or environmental or product related costs or benefits that a company also produces. It produces lots of benefits for, let's say, wages or taxes or things like that. It may produce negatives like pollution or carbon emissions. And so what if we could create a scorecard that would dollarize everything because the business, the language of business is actually dollars and cents. Right. And so the thesis that impact accounting comes to the table with is to say, hey, look, business people and investors and consumers, they can't understand the gobbledygook of things like metric tons and liters and metrics for eutrophication and all these crazy things. So let's dollarize everything because after all, business people understand and consumers and investors understand dollars and cents. So it's an attractive idea to have kind of one global, almost P&L for the ultimate impact of a company on the planet, social, environmental, economic, etc. So the premise I really like. Unfortunately, I don't think it's tenable, and I think it will lead to more private gain and public pain. Why is that? Well, so you can look at a number of groups that are focused on this. One is the Value Balancing Alliance in Europe. Another is the Impact Weighted Accounts Initiative at Harvard, which is funded principally by Sir Ronald Cohen, who is the founder of Apex, the a very successful UK-based private equity firm. Credit to Impact Weighted Accounts Group. They publish on all of their methodologies, so you can go in and look and see how it is they're calculating these impacts. First of all, I would say that measurement is really impossible. So... That sounds stark, but think about this. Let's say you were charged with measuring the positive and negative impacts of a lithium mine in South America. Mm-hmm. Where do you draw the boundaries on the positive and negative associated with that mine? If you just look at the mining, you'd say probably that business is going to come out with a pretty negative scorecard. It's you know tearing apart the earth. It may not be the best in terms of code of conduct application. So its environmental scorecard certainly is going to be very negative, even if it does make a good, generate a good economic profit. But what if the lithium that's mined there actually leads to creation of batteries that allow for the electric vehicle industry to surge? Right. Did they get credit for that or not? Where do you draw the boundaries to make a judgment about whether a company, uh, what to include in their impact accounts? A second problem with measurement is false precision. So how do you decide, for example, how much to charge per liter of water in Bangladesh versus Des Moines? In order to create impact accounts, you literally have to price every externality. So today, we don't have global agreement on the biggest externality, which is how to price carbon. If you're buying carbon credits, for example, you can pay anywhere between $1 and $250 per metric ton. Mm-hmm. What number is the impact weighted accounts group going to use? Right. Is it going to be geolocated and geospecific? To calculate, for example, they put out a paper on consumer goods in the food space, and they tried to show how one would calculate impact weighted accounts for the food space. Just to calculate one metric on product impacts, product impacts, by the way, is broken into seven components. You have to go through 13 different interpretations or extrapolations just to come up with the product impact on health for, let's say, a cereal manufacturer. I mean, if you look at the what's required to come up with these valuations, there's interpolations, extrapolations, estimates, and then decisions that are really, I think, hard to make. So I think measurement's impossible, number one. I think number two, 
sustainability is a systems concept. It's very hard to measure in isolation. So for example, is a natural gas plant in New England the same as a natural gas plant in Iceland? And the answer is no, because a natural gas plant in New England may be actually a good thing environmentally, because uh, you may be displacing coal and use it as a peaker facility, whereas a natural gas plant in Ireland would displace renewable energy and would be a bad thing. Sustainability is a systems concept. The third reason why I think it's not going to work is I think shadow pricing is pretty meaningless. So when you put it, come up with an impact-weighted account statement, it doesn't change literally how the company will pay for water, or it doesn't change literally how much the company will pay for pollution or per unit of carbon. It's just a shadow PL. Mm-hmm. And if investors and executives continue to be measured on their real PL, their accounting PL, their financial PL, that's what they're going to focus on. So, what I think this will be is a boon to the accounting industry. Meaning PwC, for example, just announced they're hiring 100,000 accountants over the next five years. And they're what they call trust accountants. And one of their principal needs and one of the principal drivers of their hires are to do this impact accounting or non-financial valuation. That's great for PwC. It's going to be a pain for the companies that have to pay PwC. And I don't think it's going to yield much of anything. Worse than anything, I think it'll likely defer the necessary regulation that's required to get companies to change behavior. So I'm not a big fan. <laughs> yeah, I got that. Yeah, I got that. No, I, 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 we had we had impact weighted accounts on uh, a month or two ago, and I asked them, you know, some of those same questions. And I'm very curious as is where this where this goes, you know, where this conversation is five years from now. Has that, you know, has impact accounting in some form, whether it's impact weighted accounts or somebody else, move the needle anywhere. My question is, is this going to impact the incentives that need to be impacted to do something? And the the, the jury is out. And we'll, we'll, we'll right. Remember that we are, we're now, as I mentioned, 25 or 30 years in, and we've gone through different iterations or initiatives that each one has sold us on this one's going to be the one that's going to drive behavior change. And that started with, you know, corporate voluntary social action to corporate CSR reporting to creating shared value, which was big. And Michael Porter and HBS sold this notion that, you know, you can mm-hmm. fix the uh, environmental and social problems and drive PL to ESG investing, to impact accounting. And through each of these separate initiatives, the planetary challenges have gotten more extreme, not less so. Well, this corporate voluntary action and or sharing of additional information are certainly insufficient. So I worry that we are on that same path with impact-weighted accounts. All right. Well, then let's circle back to the question of ESG and alpha. And that gets into the question of you know, what exactly is ESG uh, and how can you compare apples and oranges and watermelons and automobiles? You know, you know you're, not, you're not talking about the... the an ESG fund in one in in Toronto is different than an ESG fund across the street in Toronto, much less in Johannesburg or anywhere else. So go ahead. Yeah, you land on a fundamental challenge, which is how can you say that ESG defi- delivers alpha if you don't tell me what ESG is? If I were to ask you, for example, tell me, Matt, how do you define happiness? And I asked six other people the same question. My guess is you'd come up with different responses. You may say, well, it has to do with 
the length of your marriage and the stability of your marriage. You may say it has to do with the number of children you have and how healthy they are. You may say it has to do with mm. your net worth. Maybe you say it has to do with your job stability. I don't know. Right. You know, or, or maybe you say it's all those things and you weight them differently than I would. Right. Well, that's the state of uh, the definition of ESG today. And so it's impossible to make a blanket statement about ESG delivering uh, alpha absent a clear definition of ESG. That's the first right. point. The second point is, um, I just finished a series of interviews with either current or ex-asset managers or owners in the space that are connected to ESG to figure out what their answer would be to does ESG deliver alpha. Interesting that everyone who's an ex-portfolio manager or ex to the space said, no, it's a marketing thing. Mm -hmm. And all those who are still currently employed said, yes. And I said, okay, tell me, <laughs> what are the reasons, what are the mechanisms? How then, for the people that said yes, how then does ESG investing deliver alpha? And they came up with four reasons. They were, it lowers the cost of capital, it generates higher profits, it's a signal of good management, and because capital flows are flowing ESG, there'll be better returns. And yet, if you look at the logic of each of those claims, you'll find that none of them hold up to scrutiny. So for example, does ESG lead to a lower cost of capital? The answer may be yes to that. I actually think it could because ESG, high ESG companies are ones that tend to risk. And if you're someone who's loaning a company or money, or you're gonna invest in a company's equity, you care about their risk. And if they're less risky, you probably give them a loan at a lower rate. So could it lower the cost of capital? The answer is yes. But if it does, a lower cost of capital is gonna to lead to lower not higher returns. People have it exactly backwards. Uh, Eugene Fama, who's the Nobel Prize winner, is quoted as saying, lower cost of capital for environmental and social accredited firms mean for ESG investors, virtue is its own reward since investors get lower expected returns. And so lower cost of capital is going to translate to lower returns. Do ESG companies, high ESG companies deliver higher profits? The answer is probably, you know, because again, maybe they deliver on opportunities to generate revenue or reputation or brand that low ESG companies don't. Maybe they're better at eco-efficiency, so they drive better margins. But higher profits alone is not the same as generating alpha. If expectation of those higher profits is built in a stock price, then returns will be market returns. And so when you go through the logic of these answers that, that are proffered about how ESG high ESG companies or how ESG investing will generate alpha, I don't think they hold up to scrutiny. Yeah. When I get this question, I just kind of laugh and roll my eyes. And, and I ask the, whoever's asking it, you know, what, what, do you mean, what do you mean by ESG? And then we get into this conversation that we just had. I think, it, and I think I, I would caution people that it's fine that we don't have an agreement on what ESG is, what sustainability is. We did a, a project a couple of years ago with PRI, where we went around the world, back when you could go around the world, and we asked people, you know, we were in 20, 30 different countries, and we held meetings there, and we asked portfolio managers, analysts, mostly, you know, CFA charter holder kind of, kind of folks, about the current state of ESG. And then, as part of that project, we did 33 case studies with firms who are doing ESG integration and what they do. And you know what? They all had a different recipe. And that's fine. You know, Goldman Sachs in Hong Kong was doing ESG differently than, you know, in equities was doing differently than this company in Boston who was looking at fixed income. 
they're weighing things differently. Maybe governance was the most important thing. Maybe they had a small negative screen, but then they had, you know, 12 analysts in-house who are experts on ESG. And I caution people that ESG and ESG investing, if there is such a thing, is more art than science. And you can't, there's never going to be a formula that says, plug in these numbers and this is what you'll get for your investment in ESG. And because it's more art than science, it takes the expertise of, of you know, if it's a portfolio manager, an analyst sitting in a room with a board member or management to understand, you know, is what I'm getting the straight story or is it marketing or is it a little bit of both? And how do I evaluate that? And to, you know, and my worry is that we're trying to oversimplify a very complex thing uh, and, and to say, you know, and to ask, does ESG deliver alpha is the wrong question. That's a question that I don't think really needs to be asked because it, the, because we can't agree on what that thing is, the answer is, is largely meaningless. You know, it's, it's largely for marketing purposes. Well, I would just add, my worry is related, but I guess it's different. My, my worry, if do certain ESG funds, will certain ESG funds deliver alpha? My guess is yes. As a rule, will they know? But my bigger concern is threefold. First is that ESG funds do charge higher fees. Yeah. On average, fees are 40% higher for ESG funds than vanilla funds. And so there's a, a wealth transfer from individual and institutional investors to asset managers. That's fine. That doesn't bother me terribly. The second thing is that ESG investment is now being sold as, in some cases, as delivering impact. And I've mentioned, I don't think that's going to happen. And right. the third is, the one I'm most concerned about is that ESG investing will create this veneer that the trillions of dollars that are invested around the world are going to solve these social and environmental issues when I don't think they will, and as a result, defer necessary regulation. That's yeah. my principal concern. Agreed. Larry Fink has said both things. He said, we need regulation, but at the same time, at a Brookings conference in February last year, he said, quote, we're not going to really need governmental change or regulatory change. That's worrisome to me because we know that, you know, voluntary route that we've been pursuing certainly hasn't done it yet. And so those are my concerns about ESG investing. No, I, I would say I, I share those concerns. And, and to summarize, I would say, you know, it gets, it gets back to the incentives in, in our daily lives and in companies' lives that will, will tackle this problem, not investing in fund A versus fund B. So with that, with that happy conclusion, <laughs> let's get to uh, where we give our listeners a little bit of homework. And I'll start off, and this one's easy, because I think you know our listeners, if we haven't turned them off too much, should read some of the stuff you've written recently, and just then they can look them up. You know, a trillion dollar fantasy gets into, is ESG fit for purpose for all its, all its either explicitly or implicitly promising? And then heroic accounting gets into the accounting, impact accounting, and what can we and can we not expect for those? I think, you know, those two get, goes into more detail than we could go into here about Ken's thoughts on those. And I'll, I'll be curious about the, you said, the interviews you've been doing with, with, with managers. Let us know when that comes out and I'll, and I'll send that to our listeners as well. But what are, what's some homework you would give our listeners? What are you reading that you think can, can have an impact, uh, no pun intended, on the ESG world? So I'm halfway through, but as of right now, I think a superb book is one written by Charles Mann that's called The Wizard and the Prophet. And it tracks the 
history of two men, William Voigt and Norman Borlaug, uh, who's a Nobel Prize winner that people probably, most people don't know about. One is what would be described as a Malthusian and the other is kind of a techno-optimist. Mm -hmm. And it looks at their approaches to solving environmental challenges and then maps their different thinking to big issues like uh, the ability to feed a population of 10 billion that's going to require 50% more calories by the year 2050, or it looks at water scarcity and the challenges inherent in uh, producing enough water as the population goes and people become richer. And it's a really wonderful history for those interested in the environmental movement and the different perspectives that people continue to have. I think it's really worthwhile. Another book that I just completed that I thought was great was written by an author called Amitav Ghosh, who is prolific, mostly fiction. But this book he wrote was about nutmeg. I think it's called, you have to get the right title for people, but it's by Amitav Ghosh. And it looks at the connection between colonialism and climate change which is not something I thought much about, but it really resonated. And then I saw an article in the New York Times a couple of weeks ago, which I'd recommend to people, that talked about the island of New Caledonia and the mining that's going on there in order to deliver products for the battery industry and the fight for control. Again, getting at why colonialism happened in the first place and the connection of colonialism to resources, which I thought was... Uh, something I haven't thought about, but really fascinating and uh, not all that uplifting, but certainly fascinating. Yeah. I find at the end of the podcast, we haven't given people a lot of uplifting messages, but a lot of, a lot of good homework. Hopefully that'll, that'll turn. <laughs> well, the wizard and the prophet does present at least two points of view. So it's at least half uh, dour and half optimistic. So you, you get a little of both in that one. Yeah. Well, Malthus wasn't the most optimistic uh, of, of economists. No, no, but the Borlang point of view and the, the techno-optimists yeah. is kind of the the um, the balance to that one. Okay, great. Well, as always, you've added more to my – I always leave the podcast with more to read. My my book – the books on my end table are growing. I've got to, I've got to either stop asking that question or, or, or read more. But, Ken, thanks for your time. I think we've gone about 45 minutes or so. It was a great conversation. Thank you for having me. Not a problem. Be well, and uh, thanks for thanks for being with us. My pleasure.